Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. I'm here today with Nora Fritz, assistant professor at Wayne State University. She's here to talk to us about dual tasking. And I'm going to let Nora introduce herself to our audience. So welcome, Nora. Thanks, Parm. It's a pleasure to be here as a prior officer of the DD-SIG, I'm always happy to support DD-SIG activities, um, and it's always fun to chat with you, so this should be a good time. As Parm mentioned, I am a professor at Wayne State University, and I have a laboratory called the Neuroimaging and Neurorehabilitation Lab, where we study a few different things, but mainly uh, the cognitive influences on motor performance, as well as how, whether we can image those with neuroimaging and take a look at predictors for uh, motor skill acquisition and rehabilitation, and then to develop novel rehabilitation techniques to help people with neurodegenerative diseases. So we have a few different aims, lofty aims <laughs> in the lab. Now that sounds super exciting, Nora. Uh, what population specifically are you looking at in the lab? So we're targeting neurodegenerative populations, but we tend to look mostly at people with multiple sclerosis and Huntington's disease, which are both populations that have lots of motor and cognitive issues. So that works out nicely. Right. Okay, great. So you mentioned that there's a neuroimaging component. Correct. So is it a functional MRI kind of thing? That Actually, we are most, mostly focused on structural MRI. And the reason for that is that we're looking at um, kind of the microstructural integrity of white matter tracts. And so we're interested in understanding whether some of these pathological features that we could image at baseline um, might help us predict rehabilitation success or long-term function. Great. And so in the people with MS specifically, are you finding some um, relationship between the structure and function in those people? So I can certainly speak to some work from my postdoc that I did with Dr. Kathy Zakowski, who's an occupational therapist um, who studies multiple sclerosis and is sort of an expert in tying motor control to neuroimaging. And we specifically were looking at um, neural correlates of strength and walking function in MS, and we're able to show that the corticospinal tract is specifically related to strength and to walking function, which is maybe not particularly surprising in people with MS, but what it was really interesting is that it was better correlated than something like the EDSS, which is this gold standard tool for disability that relies heavily on walking function. So that was kind of surprising, but lends support for this idea that clinical measures can be really important in determining or understanding the pathology of the disease. So we, that's one of our recent papers. We've also been able to show um, relationships in cortical thickness with quality of life, pain, and cognitive function, and then a brand new paper that looks at 
correlates of sensory function in MS. And then in terms of bringing this kind of information into actual practice in the clinic, are there things that clinicians can be looking for when they have access to information about neuroimaging that might help them to determine if somebody is either on the pathway to a little more cognitive decline or might benefit from some kind of cognitive intervention? So I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I actually get asked about this a lot. And the markers that we're using from a neuroimaging standpoint are actually not part of the normal imaging battery that a person with MS would get annually. So that makes it really complicated to use them from a clinical standpoint. They also require quite a bit of post-processing that takes you know, a, a good amount of time. Um, so at this point, they're really not ready for clinical consumption. But I think that the important idea is that at least from my standpoint as a physical therapist, is that these measures of, of um, function that we are studying in the clinic or that we take in the clinic to look for a change over time in our patients do have some relationship with their underlying pathology. Um, and I think that supports some studies that we are hoping to do from an intervention standpoint to look at plasticity over time and try to understand whether specific rehab interventions can actually drive structural changes. Um, and so that sets up this kind of this baseline. Okay. So specifically, are there specific measures that we as physical therapists can do that you have found correlate well with some of the things you're seeing on the neuroimaging? Yes. Um, so as I was alluding to earlier, um, measures like the time 25 foot walk or a measure of walking velocity uh, is a great way to, to kind of probe the corticospinal tract. And then from a strength perspective, we were looking at a summed strength measure using a handheld dynamometer of strength in the hip. So hip flexion, hip extension, and hip abduction taken together because they have such an influence on walking. So those are the measures that I would recommend from a functional standpoint. Of course, we're still trying to understand more about this. And part of the work that my lab is doing right now is a longitudinal study trying to understand uh, what specific cognitive domains are linked with motor, different motor functions that we, we might probe as PTs um, to understand how we can tailor interventions to potentially drive improvements in different cognitive domains or to challenge different cognitive domains in our treatments, and then in turn to, you know, understand something about the pathology. Neat. Yeah. And I think that that's really helpful. I mean, I think as physical therapists, there are a lot of outcome measures that get thrown at us and that, that you know, the EDGE documents, for example, are great, but they're still for a lot of, of therapists and the const- clinical constraints that they have, it's a lot to try to do them all. So being able to sort of specify the specific ones, particularly um, if we know it can be prognostic of something else, I think is, is really helpful. Right. And of course, there's some limitations, of course, with all of these. So um, if your patient is in ambulatory, you're not going to be able to use these measures. So what do you do then? So that's a good question that we, we need to answer. And then what if your patient is recently diagnosed and you can't really see any difference from a normal control uh, on their walking speed, their walking speed looks just fine, then what do you do? So I think those are kind of questions that we are grappling with. And I think that's probably where the conversation might turn to something like a dual task or 
providing more challenging or complex motor tasks to really tax the system and try to understand at what point does walking become attention demanding for these individuals. So I think that that's really the next step that we're sort of looking at. Yeah, and that's a great segue because uh, I think one of the things that our listeners are really interested in hearing about is the the whole idea of dual task Mm -hmm. and training dual task in neurodegenerative populations. Is it beneficial? Do we make a change? And there was that paper a little while ago about should we even be doing it? Because really, should we even be training people to... practice dual tasking when really what we want to try to do is train them to not dual task at all. Right. And whether that's actually possible. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You're right. And I I do think that this has become a really hot topic in the rehab field, especially is this idea of dual tasking and trying to measure both motor and cognitive functions. So in the past, like historically speaking, often physical therapists would just measure motor function and then potentially a neuropsychologist might measure cognitive function and never shall the two meet. Uh, But now there's this increased focus on looking at both components because we all understand how tied together these two functions are. And so you make a compelling argument, like should we even be training dual tasking? I don't know yet. Uh, This field is really young. It's in its infancy. And I think what we're learning is that Uh, dual tasking can be a really sensitive tool for assessing function and where function breaks down in our patients. And that there might be some sort of cut point where, you know, we go, we switch from rehabilitation to compensation in our patients where, where training is concerned. And I don't think we know what that point is. I mean, to my knowledge, we haven't even established norms for dual tasking in adult healthy adults. So um, just the sheer variety of motor and cognitive tasks that could be paired together makes establishing a norm a pretty daunting task. So it's a lot to think about, a lot to unpack, and but it kind of exciting still. Right. I think quantifying the whole dual task activity is difficult. Um, and how, you know, I'm curious how you in your lab, how you specifically are either measuring a dual task cost, what kinds of dual tasks are you doing? So we've been testing a few new kinds of dual tasks, but we've also been using some of the old reliables. So uh, things like the tug cognitive or the walking while talking test to some of these more standardized measures. But the thing that I would want to bring forward, like the the main takeaway that I would want a clinician to take home about measuring dual task is that you want to be sure to measure both the motor and the cognitive pieces in the single task condition before you pair them together. Um, Because you need to know something about not only the motor dual task cost, but also that cognitive dual task cost. I think that's really important. And I really like the work of Prue Plummer out of University of North Carolina, who established the dual task effect in which she puts together the motor and the cognitive uh, costs to get a sense of what the patient is prioritizing when they're doing uh, their dual task. Are they prioritizing the walking, uh, the cognitive task? Do they get some sort of facilitation from doing the dual task where they get better at both tasks? Or in the majority of patients, mutual interference where they get worse at both tasks. But having that 
measure can actually be really helpful in your patient because then you can look at a shift in priority from pre to post. So if we think about like um, a patient with Parkinson's disease who might have a, like a posture second kind of strategy uh, where they're prioritizing a cognitive task rather than the postural task, you could look at over the course of your treatment whether they shift from this posture second strategy to a more posture first strategy when they're dual tasking. And that might tell you something about the efficacy of your intervention. Mm -hmm. And what about new dual task types of activities? So what we've been focusing on mostly in our MS patients, but also in HD, uh, is really targeting cognitive areas that are specifically known to be impaired in that population. So we're trying to use cognitive tests that actually probe areas that are known to be uh, impaired. So rather than just choosing um, an arithmetic test or a fruit naming fruits and vegetables test or uh, something like that, not to say that those can't be really helpful, um, but we're trying to, to look at areas that we know are impaired. So in MS, things like information processing speed or in HD, um, an executive function task. So can you give us an example? Um, sure. What would be an executive function task for somebody with HD? So we've been looking at the Stroop test. For listeners who might not be familiar with the Stroop test, there's three conditions in the Stroop, but we are most interested in this interference condition. Um, and what the person sees is actual written out names of colors. So red, blue, green written out, but they are written in a conflicting color or an incongruent color. So the word red might have green font, for instance. And so what the person's job is, is then to name the color of the ink and not what the word says. Um, and this can be more challenging than you might anticipate. <laughs> and so um, we- I know, I've um, done it before. It's not yeah, easy. It is really not easy. You can, there's confusing. apps that will do the Stroop test right on your phone or iPad or whatever. So it, it is something that you know you could use. Yeah. Is it something that you feel like would be beneficial for training? Um, possibly, although it's not super functional, right? Mm -hmm. So I think potentially um, if you identify that there's an issue in executive function, then it might be better to kind of tailor your therapy to include more tasks that require executive functioning rather than just practicing the Stroop. Because what we know about task-specific training tells us that the person would just get a lot better at doing the Stroop, and we don't really know how Trans how that would translate to their real function. So one of the things we're learning is that, you know, some of these tasks are really challenging to do in a walking condition and you might have to just, we, we can test them in a standing condition. So looking at postural control and balance on different surfaces, foam, level ground, feet together, different things, tandem. So that's what we had tried for the Stroop. For instance, we couldn't we couldn't come up with a good way to do the Stroop while they were walking because we had to project it up on the wall for them to see. Mm -hmm. So these are all things that methodological things that we're struggling with and problem solving in the lab. Right. And I'm just curious if you have been able to translate some of this stuff yourself into a clinical practice in terms of evaluating cognitive uh abilities in your patients and then providing some kind of intervention? So we do evaluate some of these in our clinics, but um, since I'm not regularly in a PT clinic, I, I don't have the opportunity to do that. I always encourage my students to do so. If they see a specific deficit or identify a deficit that they think 
um, is impaired and should be further evaluated. But it's a good point. I mean, we talk about this idea of the interaction of mobility and cognition, but how many of us are actually measuring cognition regularly? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Perhaps MMSEs, things like this, and but how much time does it take and how right. regularly? I do know the Cleveland Clinic, their MS clinic, um, does measure all of these regularly each time the person comes, and they've developed a computer application of, of many of these standardized cognitive tests, so it reduces some of the burden so that's kind of an interesting model that I wonder if we'll see more of coming. And what cognitive tests, so let's take the population of people with MS, what cognitive tests would you recommend for that population? So the ones that have been validated and highly recommended by the teams of neuropsychologists who have looked at this are, uh, there's a battery called the BICAMS, which stands for the Brief International Cognitive Assessment for MS. And it includes three measures that target domains of information processing, visual spatial memory, and then working memory. And so these tests are the symbol digit modalities test, uh, which many people might be familiar with. And that's been identified as like the single best cognitive measure to use in MS if you just have a short amount of time. It only takes about two minutes to administer the whole test. The others require, since they are memory tests, they have a delayed recall component, so they require a bit more testing time. There needs to be about 25 minutes between the initial assessment and the delayed recall condition. So again, it's a time time constraint. In our research, we tend to use additional measures too to get more precise cognitive domains or more challenging tasks. And you know, another place where we could work sort of multidisciplinary in this is to team with our OT colleagues because a lot of a, a lot of people who have access to OTs you know they're doing these measures much more than we are yes i'm and really glad you brought that up we can't access that information and then sort of work together to come up with some kind yes. of plan I completely agree. And those um, clinicians that also have access to speech therapists in their clinic, that mm-hmm. that's another great resource. So um, I completely encourage that cross-collaboration and also the discussions that include, um, you know, the OT saying, oh, I really identified a def- deficit in this particular area. And then the PT targeting that area from a motor standpoint with their treatment. I think that's, that would be great. All right. So what about this idea of tra- of training or intervention? We teach it to students. We recommend it. Uh, and I'm curious if in your clinical practice, whether it's you or, or other therapists that are, are doing it, what kinds of things are you doing for intervention? And, and do you feel like even anecdotally, you're seeing some improvement or changes in your patients? Yeah, so I really like um, this paper that came out a few years ago by Tara McIsaac and Lisa Muratori and some colleagues where they established a dual task taxonomy. And I think that that's super, super helpful for a clinician who is looking to initiate a dual task training program because it gives you a place to start. Because the real challenge with dual task training that's similar to any kind of training really is that you have to individualize it for your patient. So what I think is a challenging dual task might not be challenging at all to you. 
you know, if, if you were an accountant in your past life and I'm asking you to do arithmetic while you walk, that's probably not going to be so challenging for you. I don't know, Nora. I was an engineer in my past life and, <laughs> math, and it's still hard for me to do like <laughs> arithmetic. Fair, fair enough. But, but um, right, like some people like start getting sweaty when you start yes. talking about like math, you know? Yes, like, they just can't think about it at all. Yeah, it, like turns their stomach or something and other right. people are just like, no problem and blah, blah, you know? So I think yes. you're right. I think it's important. It needs, certainly needs to be individualized Individual. and and I agree. I really like that paper too. And I've used it uh, when I've done teaching with students. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I, I like about it, there's two things that I think are really helpful to a clinician. One, it breaks down the task by both the novelty and the complexity of the task, which are not always the same thing, right? Um, so let's say you're, you want the patient to use walking sticks. That's a highly, that might be a highly novel task to them, but it might not be particularly complex if they've already used a cane before, for instance. Um, so you can think, kind of break it down between the novelty and the complexity of the task, which is, is exciting. Um, but then the other piece is that um, it, it kind of guides you through a progression of the, in the same way that Gentile's taxonomy does, it really guides you through a progression of how to move from one stage to another with a patient. And I, I think that that's really helpful as a clinician. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the question that always comes up when we talk about any kind of intervention is, is how much, and I know that we don't necessarily have an answer to that, but, you know, how much time in a typical PT session would I want to spend on dual tasking and for how long over the course of weeks should we be practicing this stuff? It's a million dollar question, Parm. I, I don't know the answer. Um, if you... Listen to Catherine Lang speak about repetition. She would know that, or she would say that we are not doing nearly enough repetitions of, you know, if, if it's arm control or arm reaching and we're just focusing on upper extremity control, we're not doing enough reaches in a typical therapy session to drive plasticity. We need way more than that. So I think this issue of dose and response has been a really hot topic since um, four step. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, I mean, it's not a linear relationship, right? Which kind of makes sense. Right. And that at some point, it's almost parabolic in that at some point, it's, it starts to go down. Which is, you're saying kind of this idea that um, at some point, if you train even more, you won't see any additional benefit to it, is what you're saying? Right. But I just, I think this idea of what is the appropriate dose, we don't necessarily know. So um, we did a systematic review looking at dual task training in neurologic populations. It's some years old now, uh, about four years old now. And so I know there's a lot more literature that could be added. But at that time, what we found is that there was such a disparity between not only the training techniques that were being used, but the assessments that were being used to measure dual tasking, um, that it was really challenging to kind of pool all the data together. And the majority of studies were going that we're going, you know, several times a week for six to eight weeks. And they were only focusing on dual test training, which is not um, feasible in a regular PT clinic. Uh, but in other studies, they would just have one half hour of treatment and show changes in um, cadence, for instance, and under dual test conditions. So there's just this huge variability in what we're seeing in the literature. And I don't think we have a good answer 
on what the dosage should be. Right. And, you know, and it's tricky. Um, We talked with Dr. Terry Ellis last time sort of about our PT episodes of care and what we are really doing for patients. And in this model of a neurodegenerative disease, how do we optimize how we see patients? Right. You know, and you get into the whole issue of like, yeah, it would be great to see people five days a week or three days a week, Sure. but it's not feasible. And so, you know, really what we're doing is helping them to know what to practice and helping them to establish some kind of regular activity where they can really practice this stuff on their own. And, you know, then we get to the, to the point of how much of that is safe. Can you really push the intensity that you need safely without the kind of supervision that a physical therapist can provide? So it gets tricky and it gets tricky fast. I completely agree. The only thing I would add is that just like anything else, this kind of training needs to be driven by the individual's goals in their particular time during their disease stage. And so if they have a particular goal and they're early in their disease stage and that goal is related to, I don't know, texting while they're walking, I'm not sure that that's particularly safe in anyone, but uh, some sort of really discreet kind of dual task, maybe carrying a laundry basket around their house or upstairs or something, then maybe it is appropriate to include some elements of dual tasking in your in your treatment and, and to tailor it so that it is safe for them to practice it at home. Um, maybe they carry a, a plastic tray with styrofoam cups on it. And that's to, you know, start working on this idea of stabilizing, um, an object between two hands and walking with it and maintaining their postural control. And that way, if they drop it, it's not going to break, you know, so you have to, I'm thinking like, how can we tailor the environment to make it safe for this person who has a goal that is appropriate for their level of disease and incorporate some kind of dual task. Um, but you know, it has to be individualized for the person. So certainly in some of our patients, it won't be appropriate. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's a, a good point too, that it's not everything is for everyone. Right. Right. And we could make the same argument for other um, kind of hot topic interventions like locomotor training. We have a new CPG coming out on locomotor training and maybe we would say, oh, you know, we have great evidence to support it. It's really exciting, but it's not for everyone. So same kind of issue. We see cognitive impairment as a limitation in almost every one of our PT interventions. So if you see a patient who's cognitively impaired, you may find that just getting them to go through a series of exercises or an obstacle course that you've laid forward is a really challenging task. And so at that point, you know, with cognition declining or impaired, or in some patients, walking is so attention demanding that they literally cannot do another task. You can't add anything else. We don't know a lot about dual test training if you think about the literature that's available. We have some good evidence to support that it task-specific dual test training results in improvements in dual task walking, but I don't think we have any kind of standard about who that's appropriate for, at what stage of disease, how much, how often. Um, so those are all big questions that we need to we need to answer. And like you said at the beginning is at some point we're going to go away from training and switch to, to compensatory strategies, yeah. and we just don't know right now where that line is. Right, exactly.
Right. Great. Okay. So, but I want to ask you these other, a couple of, you know, these other, like getting to know Nora Fritz. <laughs> I'm nervous. <laughs> okay. You have a newish baby. Is that right? I have a brand new walker. <laughs> she is 14 months old. She took her time learning how to walk. Um, yes. I have a little girl named Anne and she uh, is just lovely. We can't get enough of her. <laughs> That's great. Let's laugh every day. That's good. Um, we're finally getting some spring weather here in Michigan. And so uh, she's enjoying being outside every day now. We, for a while there, we had to hibernate a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and w- as a new walker, it's probably like a whole different world to her all of a sudden. <laughs> and Nora, I want to hear what you're excited about. What's up and coming? Uh, so I'm really excited about a study that we have under review right now. Um, This is a study I collaborated with Dr. Anna Kratz out of the University of Michigan. She is a neuropsychologist who's interested in multiple sclerosis. And so we have this shared interest in kind of addressing symptoms and understanding the role of cognitive function on on motor skills. And so we've been working together for a few years now. And we just completed a pilot randomized controlled trial that was funded by the National MS Society where we developed and then tested a telephone delivered intervention, exercise intervention for MS fatigue. Um, So it was specifically designed to target fatigue and we compared it head to head with um, one-on-one in-person exercise training. So everyone did the same training. Um, It included both aerobic and uh, strengthening exercise. And it was once a week for eight weeks. And the only difference was that they either met with the trainer in person or talk to them over the telephone. And they had a binder of educational materials and then they were prescribed a home exercise program that was progressed each week. And we are really excited about this because what we saw is that there was really no difference between the two groups and both groups improved. So not only was the telephone delivery feasible and acceptable to patients, they really liked that they could do it after work. They didn't have to drive into the city. They didn't have to come to a major medical center. They could live several hours away from us and it wasn't a problem. Right. Um, so not only did they like it from that aspect, but it was also effective. So that was really exciting. Yeah, that is cool. And particularly, you know, to be able to deliver to people in rural settings, I think, is yes. is a challenge. Absolutely. And so this overcomes one of those barriers. So the financial barrier, potentially um, the transportation barrier, barrier, and just the location barrier. Yeah, neat. So we've had just a great time talking to Dr. Nora Fritz and want to thank her for coming on and uh, really sort of challenging our thinking about dual tasking and giving us a lot to think about and work on in the clinic. So thanks for being here, Nora. Okay, thanks, guys. That was fun. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. Special thanks this week to volunteers Christina Burke, Komal Schulte, Sonali Seti, and Kristen Sternowski for providing background research and information. This episode was edited by Sarah Crandall and thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music.
looking for bloopers. <laughs> Three hours of dual tasking. <laughs> dual task training expert. Oh, please no. <laughs> we just kind of got bamboozled. So we'll try. first we'll try to get this um, pilot study published yeah. out, get it out in literature, and then we can move on to a larger scale. When you get your R01 and you're looking for, <laughs> you just. I'm going to try not to shuffle too many papers here. Do a fact, a fact check at the end. Okay. If we have to redo this, we'll redo it, but hopefully not.